0: Hi, it's Megan and Jason. You may know us from Omer's Apple Sauce, and we've teamed up with Opal Healthcare to bring you the Cup of Q&A's podcast series.
1: Okay, Megs, I'm not entirely sure why we're in the car driving, but remind me again what we're doing. Well,
0: today we're meeting Holly, one of the team members from Opal Healthcare, and she's going to interview us this time about our care journey with Omer.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got that, but why are we in the car driving when we're meant to be at home waiting for Holly? Because we need milk. Oh. Yes. Right here, hey, welcome to episode seven of the Cuppa Q and A's podcast. Holly from Opal Healthcare has just arrived, and she's brought us her own home-baked cake. Megan's popped the kettle on, so grab yourself a nice cup of tea, a comfy seat, and let's have a chat about our shared experience of caring for a loved one.
2: It's time to turn the cameras around and focus on you Jason and Megan. Um, thank you so much for hosting our Cup of Q&A series and having these very important conversations with our, with our families. Many of their experiences will be familiar to you. I know that you cared for your mum mom, and mum-in-law Omar for a number of years before you entrusted her care to our team at Kalani Vale Care Community. Would you be happy to share some of your story with us? Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me more about what Omar was like as a person?
1: Very social minded, very warm, very giving of a time. She was always the connector in her local community where she was the person that everyone would go to to say, we're going on holidays. Can you uh, collect the mail? Can you bring the bins in and out? And can you water the garden? You know, she was always that person. She was always the person that was on call to do anything anyone needed in the street. But yeah, she was always sweet, lovely, Eccentric, Dutch, <laughs> could be stubborn in her nature, um, but uh, I think we all can be from time mm. to time. But how did you mm. find her?
0: I uh, remember her being, um, she was always super, super welcoming, enormous hugs, enormous hugs, and she would hold on to you, and that was kind of her, her really, her way of just connecting and drawing you in. Um, and she was very proud um, but really humble at the same time. That's how I remember her to be, and just... Chatty and lovely and social, very social.
1: She yeah. always had a strength. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. if if she just met you, Holly, she would have come up to you and she'd give you this big hug. But like it's not just a like a embrace, it's like a tight hug. Yeah. Like she always had force and power yeah. in, in her mannerisms and what she did.
2: You went to extraordinary lengths to care for Omar full time at home. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, well we, we had Omar at home for almost five years. So we, we all moved into the same house together. So we were looking for we were looking to buy a house. We knew that um, Oma was declining in her memory and 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 her ability to be able to live, live at home alone. And so we floated the idea that we should all live together. <laughs> and she was really on board with that. she was she was feeling lonely since your dad had passed. and um, so we bought a house together where we all could live. She had her own kind of um, studio apartment, which meant that she still had her own space and her own. Uh, bedroom and kitchen and everything like that, and that um, had a really easy access to the rest of the family. So, I guess in the beginning, it worked really harmoniously. We had carers coming in to assist with, you know, my aged care. Um, Oma was really part of the family, and it, it all it, worked. It, it all it worked, worked really well, and mm. and it was it was great for the kids to have that intergenerational relationship mm. and and respect and. And um, to have Oma living with us, it was really, really lovely. There was still lots lots of things to do. There was still a lot of um, onus on us to, to doctor's appointments and medications and lots of things to organise that she didn't have the capacity to be able to do anymore. Um,
1: but she was really happy, mm. really, really happy. Like all these journeys, it sort of started gradually. Um, Oma lived roughly an hour-ish away from here, um, which felt really, really close when she was still well and, and able to be independent and look after the garden and look after her house. Um, and I you would go and visit her every Friday. And the thing that changed that for us, I think, was the fact that not, not just the loneliness, but we could see, um, that frailty sort of creeping in. You know, the, the the phone calls stopped this being during the day and all of a sudden phone calls would happen during the night. You know, she'd get up to go to the toilet and have a fall and wasn't quite sure about whether she needed help or not because she had a cut on her arm or something and I'd be whizzing out at two o'clock in the morning to, you know, see if she was okay. And then we'd try to do like FaceTime calls when she could still manage a mobile phone, we could or an iPad I think we mm, had for her. Mm, mm. Using that as a bit of a lifeline to say, well, we're an hour away, but just let's turn that on and show me where you've fallen and show me what that's like, you know. Mm. So we, we introduced things that still allowed her to be independent and, and keep us close when we needed to be. But eventually that got to a point where it was not sustainable and not safe. And, mm. you know, the falls and the forgetfulness and the loneliness was just getting too much. Mm. Um, so we felt it was safer having her here with us. Um, and she, Felt safer being amongst company as well. I think that was the main thing for mm-hmm. us. We never thought she'd want to move in with our little chaotic family. You know? <laughs> um, but you know, when it was raised during a lunch one day, it was a birthday lunch actually, and a family friend sort of said quite jokingly, "Why are you moving with these guys?" And she goes, "Oh, I'd love to oh, yeah, do that. Yeah. I'd love to do that." So that changed everything. Then, you know, we we were yeah. initially looking for a home just for us, and then we started looking for a home with with a granny flat so mm-hmm. she could be a part of the family too.
0: And the move was really big for her cognitively as well like to be in a new space like we obviously tried to make her little flat look very very similar to what it looked like in her home by using all of her furniture and all her items um, but yeah that it, it definitely looked different to what she was used to at home so we would find that she would be looking to wander upstairs but there was no stairs and yeah there was a there was a big um what do you call it like a it was a big a, a, a good couple of weeks where she was Pretty confused about where she was.
1: Just um, a spatial deficit. Yeah. You know, just the, I think the muscle memory of just moving in the same space for thirty-eight yeah. years, and and having that layout sort of imprinted in your brain, you could walk it with your eyes closed. So yeah. all of a sudden, moving in a new place and then going, yeah. I don't know where so anything it was, is. So it was
0: unsettling. Like that was a big. We weren't ready for that kind of. Um, we weren't ready for that. The for her to have that kind of a reaction either. So we kind of that was our big. You know, our first big introduction to someone living with dementia was how do we navigate how she, to make sure that she's settled and that she feels okay in that space and things like that. So that was
1: that was a big that was a big deal for a good month or so, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. I think initially we asked ourselves that question like, have we done the right yeah. thing? Is this yeah. right for her? Yeah.
2: So tell me about the progression of Omar's dementia once she moved in. Once you were all living together, you know, at what stage did it really start to become? Uh, you know, very difficult situation to bear.
1: The, the togetherness that of of living as one big, cohesive, extended family got replaced by a new social anxiety with the pandemic and the the, the comfort and the, the love and caring environment of the home became a kind of a comfortable prison, if you like, because she couldn't understand not only obviously the pandemic but the fact that we couldn't go out anymore and that life was now very much centred at home. And, her, and
0: all her routines were then broken. Yes. Which chipped away at, at the dementia. Yeah,
1: yeah, really, really rapidly. We found, and I think the more we speak with other people living with with someone with dementia, they found the same sort of thing that, you know, the pandemic really did create big, big, big changes, big leaps. But. Um, you know, we muscled on, we we, we kind of, we, we, we kept sort of modifying. We'd, we'd establish some new boundaries and say, okay, you know, this is going to work up until X, Y, Z. And then we'd reach X, Y, Z, and we'd sort of stretch those boundaries a little bit more, you know. Mm-hmm. So her routine was getting mucked up. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, our routine as a family was getting more and more disturbed. And, of course, we've got young kids as well. Mm-hmm. So it became more and more of a juggle. And, and it, we found we were, as parents we were having to pull time away from our young kids to help manage Omar's situation more and more. And you do that out of love and you do that out of, out of service and respect, but it comes a point where your kids also need your attention and you can't conquer and divide all the time. So,
2: Understandably. And then what was the experience like for your children? Did they understand what was happening with Omar? Look, they did. Mm-hmm. But then their
0: behaviour sort of said that they that they were confused by it because of the way that... They could tell that we were so unavailable, so then their behaviour became very needy and um, lots of big emotions that we wouldn't normally see from our kids. Yeah. Um, so they were manifesting their confusion and, I guess, their um, their unease to the situation in different ways. And then that was upsetting for us as well on top of that because we could see that we were becoming really, really unavailable and that they were becoming unstable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we, we just had to keep communicating about how we were feeling to each other to make sure that we were... Not, we weren't necessarily on the same page, but at least we knew what each other was feeling and thinking. Um, and it got really, it just got, re- it got really, really stressful. It got really hairy.
1: Yeah. We had that other layer of complexity in, in our circumstance where it wasn't just our little story in our home. We'd been sharing our story quite openly on, on social media um, and uh, obviously with a film being made about um, our journey with Omar as well. So we had a couple of different things to navigate not uh, central to everything was Oma's care mm-hmm. and her well being um the family, but then we had this larger family outside of home which were you know following the journey and also worried and caring and needing information and so there was responsibility on a number of different levels mm. all sort of colliding together and uh it, it was difficult territory to navigate at yeah. times. But and when it, it come down to it, like any family, we had to make good decisions yeah. for everybody.
2: So can you tell me more about what sacrifices you had to make to be able to care for Omar full-time?
1: Some of the sacrifices that you know, we knew about were family time or time with each other. That was one big thing, the, the sacrifice on your relationship, um, the sacrifice on your income or on being at work because gradually that that decision became a a full-time care situation for both Megs and I. Um, Friends, I think. I think we lost friendships and relationships along the way because you get a lot of people that stop inviting you to birthdays and barbecues and dinners and things just because you're always saying, "Or we can come for an hour or... We can't come this weekend because of Omar. Like we couldn't, we couldn't leave Oma alone anymore. And then we had the guilt of, mm. you know, do we really need to leave the house? Um, you know, we'd do shopping at night while she was asleep. Um, you'd you'd, you'd, fall, you'd find yourself falling into a pattern of that uh, existing that kind of worked almost deceptively, so that she felt everyone was still here, but. Mm. Um, not healthy you know like not healthy to feel guilty leaving the house and seeing your mum standing at the window very upset um, didn't really make for a good outing <laughs> yeah so I think it was that craving that time as us you know as a couple as a family craving individual time it became harder and harder mm. which
0: were things we never we never knew were coming either yeah. right? in the journey either we never we never knew that that was that was going to be on the horizon, really. I think anyone knows what you're in
1: for no, when it starts. You only think of the good things. It. You think yeah. of the pleasurable things. You think of the dinners together. You think of, you know, yeah. the, the beautiful, you know, watching the kids growing up yeah. with their Omar. Yeah. You think of uh, releasing her loneliness. You think of giving her new experiences and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And the you don't strength, think of the and, the strength
0: and resilience and the
1: compassion that she
0: gave us and, yeah. and our kids as well. Like you think of all those sorts of things and you just kind of morph and navigate through this this journey as you go yeah and her mobility was changing too like we'd we'd started she'd started to move around in a wheelchair so we could bring her to art soccer on a Saturday morning um but that would mean that we'd probably have to take two cars because it was she had to park closer and like all those there were so many confounding things every time you went to leave the house
2: so suddenly those simple tasks became very challenging Mm. and
0: brought along a a lot of anxiety for us as as well as Oma yeah
2: that's actually what I wanted to ask you, Megan. You were, you know, trying to balance being a mum, a wife, a carer, all while trying to have a career. Yeah. What were you feeling at this time?
0: Yeah, feelings that I'd never, I'd never experienced before. So definitely mental anguish that I'd never, I'd never had to experience before. I've always been really strong and felt that I was mentally very strong, and then I started to feel physical signs, and I started to notice. Like I was crying a lot, which was just not normal for me. Um, yeah, those sorts of things started to creep in, which really frightened me because that, that, wasn't, that wasn't me. <laughs> so those sorts of things became really obvious and then they became um, they just became more frequent. And so just like if I'd hurt a muscle, I felt like my brain was hurting, so I, um, I sought help. Um, you know, from counselors and psychologists and things like that, to make sure that I was still strong, because um, I knew that I had to be. Because we were in this, we were in this situation where we still had to be really strong. We still had to maintain our strength for the family and for Oma. So and for our marriage. <laughs> mm.
1: And then uh, we we reached a point where Oma had a bit of a health episode that just started a chain of events that made her more and more dependent on us. 24-7 at home, and we realised that we just, you know, 24-7 care is something you might be able to manage for a couple of days or a couple of weeks at mm-hmm. best, but at some point you have to sleep, and at some point the family needs to also be able to function, and um, that was when we realised that home was no longer uh, not only a safe place, it just wasn't the right place for Omer anymore, and that they needed, she needed much... A deeper care than what we could provide. She needed round-the-clock nursing availability. She needed um, more systems and more safety in place than what we, home could afford.
2: So you altered your lives to care for Omar full-time, so naturally it must have been a big ask to pass on her care to someone else. Mm. How did you know that you could entrust her care to our team at Kalani Vale Care Community?
1: I think for us it was an, an overwhelming feeling. When we, when we went on the tour and we, we walked through... Um, the team just came up and met us in the corridor and would just start talking, introduce themselves to us.
0: And I guess our original kind of priorities were really around um, light, space, garden, single room was very important for us. Food was very important for us. And we wanted to make sure we had a feeling because we knew when we moved in together um, into this beautiful house, we all had a feeling when mm. we moved in. And so I think we were looking... For a feeling. When when we visited a care a room, home, we were looking for a feeling. I was yeah. going
2: to say, was that what you expected a care home to look no, like? No.
1: No. And it makes a huge difference when you know, it's not just one person, when you know that there's a whole team of people that are working towards making your loved ones transition and daily care mm. as best as it can possibly be for them. It kind of made all those decisions make sense straight away. There was yeah. no more thought or chatter needed. It was there and then. Like, yes, this is this this is a new home. Yeah, yeah.
2: Is there a standout moment or memory you have of her time at Kalani Vale Care Community that you'd be comfortable sharing?
0: No, oh, I have one. What's yours? There was this one Friday where both the kids were at school, and um, they'd just come out of, Kalani Vale. Had just come out of a lockdown, like a, a an inside lockdown. And i'd visited in the morning and then um it got to eleven thirty, and then um it was time for lunch and then <laughs> oma was able to have lunch oh, i'm gonna cry because it was just amazing because we were able to have
2: lunch together
0: and a couple of weeks later she died
2: so it's a big deal and you guys had that you know Daughter-in-law yeah. and yeah. mum-in-law time yeah. together. Under, just... Not the carer relationship, just yeah. my mum-in-law. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So um, what piece of advice can you offer families who are going through a similar journey?
1: Uh, accept help. You can't do this stuff alone. You know, some families are still doing these things entirely on their own and not even getting in-home care support as a start. I think you know, the, the important thing is to, you can care better when, when you accept a community of care around you, in the end, there's there's no shame to moving your loved one into full time care, um, and I think I always felt that sense of burden that that was like a, a, a you know a defeat position for me as a son. Um, I now realise, having gone through that journey, it was not that at all. Yeah, my bit of advice would be be accepting of help um, and accept help generously and you you will you will see the benefits of it and your loved one will see the benefits of it as well
2: thank you jason and megan for sharing your story story with us i'm sure there will be many carers out there who can relate and will find what you've said very helpful
1: mm, thanks good. holly and thanks thank and the cake yeah it's excellent.
2: You. beautiful oh. Oh, that it turned out okay. <laughs> it's beautiful thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Copper Q&A's podcast, proudly brought to you by Opal Healthcare. For more episodes and helpful resources, visit opalhealthcare.com.au. This Copper Q&A's podcast series is copyright 2023 Opal Healthcare.